So, um, hello and welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History, in association with the Institute of Historical Research. And this week, I'll be talking to two guests, uh, Professor Matt Taylor and Dr. Raf Nicholson, who have co-authored an article for the latest issue of the Society's journal, Sporting History. Hi, both. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> hello. Uh, Matthew Taylor is Professor of History at the International Centre for Sports History and Culture, where he's one of our foremost sports historians with numerous publications on the history of association football in particular. His latest book is Sports and the Home Front, Wartime Britain at Play, 1939 to 45, which was published by Routledge in 2020 and is available in all good bookshops once they're open again. Um, I suppose you can get it online as well. I'm sure you can get it online. Uh, Dr. Dr. Raf Nicholson of Bournemouth University is a longtime friend and presenter of the podcast, and she is the current chair of the BSSH, and she specialises in women's sports history. Her most recent book is Ladies at Lords, A History of Women's Cricket in Britain, which was published by Peter Lang in 2019 and was shortlisted for the Lord Aberdare Prize in 2020. And Raf, just before we get onto the article, um, having mentioned the Aberdare Prize, can you explain for listeners what the Lord Aberdare Prize is and who might be eligible for that prize? Yeah, um, I think the full title is the Lord Aberdare Literary Prize for Sports History. Um, it's a very well-respected prize within sports history. It's awarded annually by the BSSH um, for books published in the preceding year. So at the moment, we're looking for any books that were published in 2020. And then it's decided on by a panel of judges um, and the one that they think is the best um, wins the award, basically. Um, so who's eligible? Um, well, it's for a book on any aspect of um, British sports history or written by a British author. So many non-British authors have won it um, and we do interpret kind of British sports history quite broadly as well. So um, books about the British world or the British empire would certainly be eligible. Um, and so, yeah, we're currently open to entries for books published in uh, 2020. Um, I think that you've got until April um, to submit. Um, so get in touch with Jeff um, or go to the, the BSSH website, sportsandhistory.org, to find out how you enter. Yeah, that's great. Um, so having sort of got the Aberdare Prize out of the way, <laughs> in the last podcast, I talked to um, Carol Osborne and Fiona Skillen about their special issue of sporting history um, that they co-edited. And your article is in that special issue. So how did you come on board with the special issue? Um, did they headhunt you or were you kind of in the pub <laughs> talking about it? My memory, and Raf can correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I, I, I'm often wrong about things like this. I sometimes forget. But um, I think I think Carol, Carol and Fiona contacted me, actually, because um, uh, probably because I hadn't written much about women's sport in some ways but they knew they knew I was uh, completing the book on um, sport in the second world war uh, I think I'd probably talked to them at some anyway they knew uh, they hoped I think there'd be stuff about women in it I think that was certainly the case and there and there is quite a lot uh, and um, yeah they said would you be interested in doing something I said yeah I would but could I ask Raf to do it with me as well please because um, having written the book, uh, I was aware that Raf had um, written an extremely good master's study 
which not enough people know about, and hopefully they do now. Um, which I kind of, I kind of um, uh, was, I say used, used, but also was quite influenced by in certain respects. I mean, genuinely, I don't want to make a blush too much, but um, it, it, it is one of the best studies. They aren't a great deal, but they're best general studies of sport in the Second World War. You know, regardless of the fact that it was focused on women's sport. Um, so, so yeah, I just thought, I just thought I can't really do it without Raph because, um, uh, there's a whole angle that she looks at that, that I don't. And, um, she probably, she knows more about this subject than me and anyone else. Wow. <laughs> so I contacted Raph and she said, yes. <laughs> that's really kind. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, that is, that is essentially what happened. Um, and yeah, I'd written this master's thesis, um, it's over 10 years ago now because I did my um, my master's degree at Oxford in 2009 um, and it was a women's studies course. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this was a kind of piece of women's history that I did. And I actually remember being a bit disappointed because I didn't get a very good mark for it. Oh. And I did kind of wonder whether... I did kind of wonder whether it was as good as I, I thought it was in some ways. So that's really nice to actually have it affirmed. Um, that I, it would, was... I would ask for a remark. Is it too late? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. It's all in the past, but you know. Um, so that I think what happened was it was marked by non-historians, actually, because of it being an interdisciplinary course. And I think sometimes, um, as is the way with these things, um, there's not necessarily... Um, a uh, an appreciation sometimes mm. um amongst other people from other disciplines i don't know anyway um it's really great now to actually have some of it being published finally a decade later because the years go by and you think oh i should really do something with this unpublished research and now it's out there and so i was really really pleased that matt asked me to come on board and how did you find the process of collaborating because i don't know i'm one of those people that closely guards what I'm writing <laughs> until it's actually finished I won't let anybody see it I don't mind once it's done I don't mind giving it to people but did you find I, it easy I, I again I kind of think it was relatively easy and possibly it was it was down to us I don't know but, oh, but and we're, maybe we're easy to work with both of us but I actually think it was easy because um we had slight there were some we decided what we were going to focus on which you know which themes etc cetera, etc cetera. and there were some which clearly i kind of had quite a lot on and some that raf had quite a lot on and there was another couple that we could we both had material on so there was overlap which were and it, and it was quite easy to sort that out really so there were you know we, we kind of uh, we, we kind of pieced it together in a sense from the material that we had from from the uh, from from the book that I was kind of completing or had complete I can't remember uh, and some extra material and you know Raf's um, unpublished but you know really really important um, master's thesis so yeah so, um, so, so the the article deals with the uh the participation of women in sport during world wartime i mean what would you see as distinctive about the way that the war affected women's participation in sport compared to men um well yeah it's a good question i think for me there's a few things um i guess because it's um total war and a real period of national emergency um 
it really kind of breaks down some of the gender boundaries that had existed in society beforehand. Um, and obviously, in the interwar period, which isn't a period of expansion in women's sports, um, but there's still kind of um, there's still resistance, I think, to women participating in sports and um, certainly participating alongside men. So one of the things that we see that's really interesting during the war, I think, is that we see mixed sport happening a lot more. Um, and that's partly just because of kind of practical reasons where, for example, in the armed forces, men and women are stationed alongside each other. It makes sense to play sport together. Um, in mixed teams or against each other, um, which is something that um, certainly kind of in middle class conservative women's sporting circles before the war was very much frowned upon. So there's that aspect. Um, and the other thing I think is that it really opens up sport to entire groups of women who previously hadn't really been um, able to access it easily. So particularly sports like cricket and hockey which had been quite middle class in the interwar period. Um, you get a lot of working class women who are sent um, to munitions factories or who are called up to the armed forces um, who are then playing sports um, and in kind of almost government mandated ways because it's about um, kind of developing morale or um, kind of esprit de corps if you're in the armed forces. Um, and so actually there's almost a kind of approval um, and a, a keenness for these women to play sports, um, whereas previously they had their, their opportunities to do so have been quite limited. Would you would you agree with that, Matt, do you think? Yeah, I, absolutely. All I'd add what is, and I, I hope kind of um, in when people read the article, they kind of get a sense of this as well, is that it, like lots of things, it's an extremely mixed picture. So you have... Um, you have these opportunities, you know, these possibilities for, you know, uh, groups of women who, who maybe hadn't had these before. And the war, war, the circumstances of war make that possible. But there's also all sorts of resistance which still exists and some ex resistance which might be, you know, kind of new forms of re resistance. So all these new structures through um, the other kind of the Ministry of Labour in terms of um, uh, uh, welfare and sport at work and then in the services there's resistance for the, to these structures and there's kind of resistance at different levels you know generally the government thinks it's slightly nuanced even but the government thinks sport is a good thing for everyone um particularly in certain circumstances for women um but it can't go too far and it can't be too cons uh, conspicuous um and some people lower down uh the level of you know um officialdom just don't think it's a good thing and kind of don't put any support or resources towards it. And I think each of the kind of sections, hopefully in, in the kind of article, kind of deal with that complexity and the nuance, you know, that it's just, it, it's, it's not one dimensional. There's all sorts of things happening. It depends on kind of circumstance and particular period of the, of the war, et cetera. But yeah. Well, I was interested in, in the article was that you kind of, you look at, well to, to somebody with you know just with a moderate um, knowledge of the period you look at the obvious stuff that is women who go into the services and women who are in kind of factories or workplace sport but you also look at women in the home and increased participation by them and the way that their opportunities are opened up so could you talk some more about that sort of you know women that women in the domestic setting i suppose is what i'm thinking of I mean, I guess one thing I'd say about that is in, in, in some, in a lots of senses, they're the same women. <laughs> so the women who are, the, who are particularly the women, the women who are, are working in factions and stuff like that are also 
tending the home are also doing that. So the pot, so some of the difficulties that exist for, for women that existed before the war and continue to exist that, you know, um, they simply don't have the time uh, and, and all those sorts of things become compounded <laughs> sometimes during wartime. But yet there are still these extraordinary examples. I mean, there are quite a few nice ones from mass observation from other places as well, where, um, you know, despite these sorts of things, they, 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 uh, they engineer the time or manage to make sure that it's a part of their, the rhythm of their life and the, uh, the rhythm of their life and their way of surviving. You know, because those sorts of things become extremely important and it doesn't happen for everyone. There's a lot of people who, you know, are, are, are disinterested anyway and wouldn't, you know, any time they might have, they wouldn't put aside to that. Um, but yeah, that, so a lot of these, are, some of these are the same, are the same women, you know, the women who are involved in, obviously, in, in organising the home are, are doing however many additional things as well, voluntary service and, you know, in the services and, you know, the, you know, a lot of that is still as difficult as it ever was. And some of them are, because um, I think quite a lot of married women actually are involved in civil defence um, in a kind of voluntary capacity. And so there is, again, it's this kind of same theme of, well, previously um, they would have very much been seen as um, kind of uh, responsible for the home and responsible for their husbands and children um, whereas now they've got these other responsibilities and there's this sense in which um, there's a need for them to be physically fit and actually able to carry out those duties and sport is one way in which the government can try and ensure that that's going on um, and so Matt's absolutely right that there's a, um, a very we have to kind of think of the nuances and there's um, different pictures going on locally but there is some guidance coming from national government that says women who are involved in civil defence who as I say are often married women um, should be participating in physical activity and that's quite radical actually in some respects I think. Mm, this, this, the article as we were talking before is like it's really enjoyable to read and there's some really good um, quotes in there I really like the woman who said she she was in the ATS and um, she has to play sport and she just writes in her diary, I didn't join up to play bloody rounders. <laughs> and, uh, and so where did you find the sources for these kinds of personal testimonies? Because you, you look at the kind of, it, it comes across as a very kind of detailed account, even in a short article. Well, I guess that Matt can speak about his work with mass observation, which I didn't actually use for my master's work because I didn't get the chance to go to Sussex and actually access that. Um, so what I was doing was actually quite painstaking, was basically there's this whole proliferation of literature on the role of women in the war, um, both academic, but also there's a lot of popular stuff that's based on um, kind of journalists or writers going and talking to women who participated in the war. Um, and they're doing it kind of from the 1950s right through to the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and they're going to talk to them and say, okay, what was your experience? And they're asking very generally about their experiences. And so what you have to do is wade through a whole load of stuff um, and then you just find the odd bit where they talk about, you know, oh, there was this um, kind of uh, physical training instructor in the um, 
in the women's army and um you know uh, we we hated her so much that we we burnt all her clothes one time um or you know oh i i really loved being in the armed forces but i hated pt i didn't sign up to play bloody rounders and those little things um are like gold dust and you wade through kind of books and books and books about um women's role in the second world war um so you're almost kind of there were all histories done um, you can't really do them very easily anymore because most of the women um, have sadly passed away. But there, there were oral histories done and you're kind of refracting them for your own um, purposes uh, a few decades on from when the interviews were conducted. So it's quite an interesting process. And as I say, it's quite painstaking. It, take, it took me a long time. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, Matt, do you want to talk a bit about mass observation? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think this topic really is generally is about wading through <laughs> stuff that isn't about sport you know and finding and finding bits that are relevant and mass observation is a bit like that i mean i'm a real advocate for mass observation people have probably heard me talking about it lots of times in various contexts um uh, there's compared with other topics there's there's not a huge amount in the mass observation material basically mass observation was a social research organization um which was particularly useful during the second world war and um uh, I, I use particularly for this, uh, there, there are diaries, so there are lots of kind of um, uh, what called the national panel, so people who volunteered for um, mass observation, a lot of them did it before the war, but then increasing numbers joined up during the war. Interestingly enough, a large proportion of those were women, you know, at least 50%, well, around 50% at certain times, more than that at other times. Um, but there are also what, what they were called directives where... Uh, organised the mass observation would just send out a couple of questions to them and they did that they did one in 1942 which was about which was about sport where they said you know uh, there was a bit lot of debate at the time about whether they it should um organized sport should continue because there was controversy over the the use of petrol and you know crucial resources for things that were, were considered and in inverted commas far too trivial um and that's a, that led to a quite a large debate but one of the things that mass observation also asked was well how has the war changed your experiences of sport and no one's ever looked at that stuff before because it wasn't included in a report but there's loads of stuff there and a lot of it is you know basically very short answers you know I, I don't care or I don't I have nothing to say on the subject I don't do sport or but a lot but then you get really interesting more detailed answers which are kind of potted biographies of people's kind of sporting sporting lives um which 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 provided some really interesting stuff you know kind of nuggets that um that uh, that raf mentioned so you know it's a, it's a great source and you've got you've got other things like that probably isn't used as much as it should be like um the bbc's um uh, people's war website which had done you know while ages ago mid 2000s i think that stuff's still up there um you know there's not a huge amount about sport but there, there are bits and pieces there as well so and you know lots of diaries that, that are published and things like that you can find stuff but it's hard painstaking work to go through yeah. history is often like that but particularly in this sort of topic yeah um and looking at sort of cricket raf because that's your kind of focus at the moment isn't it i mean what what effect did the war have on women's cricket was it positive negative well, like all these things, it's a bit of both. Yeah. So in terms of kind of club cricket, um, if you look at the the experience of the Women's Cricket Association, I think in 1939 they have um, 
123 clubs um, and by 1945 there's only 18 still functioning so it's hugely disruptive in that respect um, but on the plus side um, there are as I say there is this whole group of women who I think experience cricket for the first time um, so um, you know one example I came across, um, there's a, a woman called Molly Harris, um, who is working in, um, in Oxford and, um, she left school at 14, um, working class. Uh, I think she was working as a tailor, um, and would otherwise not have had any experience of cricket. Um, but she gets called up and serves in the, um, in the women's air force during the second world war. Um, after the war, she goes back to Oxford and she founds the Oxford women's cricket club. Um, so yeah, it's um, for some of these women, it makes a huge difference to their lives. Um, another example would be um, there's a an England cricketer um, called Joan Wilkinson um, who um, kind of grows up very working class, I think in Lancashire, um, and she actually gets called up into the armed forces because she's got this local reputation as being a good um, a good cricketer. Um, so she goes and then she ends up actually um, becoming a permanent physical training instructor in the women's armed forces. Um, and then she plays for England after the war because she's got all this time um, to train and to play cricket, um, which is just incredible. And which, you know, because women's sport at that time was is largely amateur, women's cricket certainly is entirely amateur. She effectively becomes almost a professional cricketer um, by virtue of 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 her wartime experience um so yeah it can be actually really life-changing and life-affirming for some women hmm. and i mean the, the broader picture matt because your book is about kind of uh, the, the the wider picture i mean does the does the war see a sort of a an increased participation by people is it does it become more a part of everybody's everyday life so so I would kind of answer those two bits slightly differently. So there's certainly less participation overall. You can't you can't claim that there's an increase. For certain people, there would have been, but if we if we don't have great figures, but generally, there were there was less participation. Cl some clubs died at the beginning of the war. Some some continued, but others didn't. So so there was that. But, but oddly enough, the kind of second part where you say, but does it become more a part of people's lives? I would say it does, despite that, and um, partly because it becomes so important to those, you know, because there's less of it around. So whether you're a supporter, whether you play yourself, you know, those those experiences become more important. And I think there's there's kind of quite a lot of evidence of that and kind of culturally becomes a, an important part of um, BBC broadcasting as well. Mm -hmm. I think the wartime, I think, is is in, in many aspects of, of, of sport is is the is the area that we need to know more about to kind of piece the interwar and the post-war together. And hopefully kind of that my book's done that and also our article has in kind of the border issue because it becomes extremely important because one of the things it, uh, is that is that all sorts of um individuals but also clubs themselves see carrying on and continuing to play as as, as a kind of patriotic duty so i think we quote kind of the 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 women's ladies hockey club you say basically you know at the beginning of the war in, in their minute books you know we're going into battle we're we're, we're, we're alongside the civil defense forces and the, and the services and this is how we can contribute to to maintain this structure to people's lives and maintain what they then you know interpret as being you know quintessentially british this is part of what we are and so we have to defend it and maintain it for everyone but also for 
in the event comes the boys who when they come back home to make sure you know that, that these structures are still there um I sort of loathe to mention the p word but um, lots of analogies have been made between wartime experience and what's going on now i mean do you see any parallels in terms of the importance of sport and that sense of some kind of thing some kind of normality carrying on i think i mean obviously there are all sorts of differences but there's that there are lots of parallels in the in the public discourse and the debate particularly i noticed right at the beginning Mm. Uh, you know about what should happen whether sports should continue it was amazing how much of that was um the language and the debates were, were very very similar to what was happening um early on in the war and then a key kind of moments um of crisis really during the um uh, the national crisis in in the summer of 19 uh, 1940 and then kind of late 41 early 42 when things were going badly before before things started improving uh, on the battlefield. So, yeah, there, there are certainly parallels. Um, but of course... I- Sorry, Sorry, Matt. I, I think there's this idea um, about... Um, we hear a lot about um, sports people having to endure bubbles, uh, biosecure bubbles, in order to play top-level sport. But people say, well, we're all making sacrifices. That's their sacrifice kind of on our behalf so that we have something to entertain ourselves with when we're in lockdown. And I think that that language of kind of national sacrifice is so reminiscent of the Second World War. Yeah, and I was also thinking about the way in which women, even in, even in, even now women's sport is taken less seriously. So the, the, the male cricketers played through the summer, didn't they? And they're on tour now in Sri Lanka. Yeah, women's cricket kind of came to a, a, a halt, didn't it, Raf? I mean, would you see parallels in that way that women's participation is seen as important, but not it's still not as privileged as, as men's, maybe? Um, to some extent, hmm. but I think... Uh, cricket's not necessarily the best example because I think that the ECB have actually um, to their credit worked quite hard to get top level women's cricket back on and there was some stuff happening over the summer and they are about to head out to New Zealand Um, Mm. so but yeah certainly in debates around things like um, the top level of women's football carrying on and and the extent to which um, women's sport doesn't count as kind of professional so therefore they don't have the same um, kind of government allowances for them being made um, that's probably true yeah Mm. and so going back to um, your your work Matt I mean what was what was it what was it like to publish a book during the pandemic because you've published landmark books before but obviously before this is there is how does it affect things like I don't know? I, I dread to ask about sales and things like that, but <laughs> I have no idea. Um, <laughs> um, Joan, you know, in, in some ways, probably not not that different. Which might say something about um, kind of publishing those sorts of academic books because without you know, it's great to publish a book and it's great to have it out there. But I think everyone feels that feeling of anticlimax to a certain extent that you've done it, you've got it out there, and because it's an academic book which tends to tends to cost a little bit more and tends not to be reviewed in uh, the quality press and uh, you know you, d- you don't really get much reaction for, mm. you know you wait for the um reviews in um in in uh, uh academic journals which come a year later if you're lucky so um but i think i mean it's nice i mean i'm not a great social media person but at least nowadays you can kind of say you can, you can put something on twitter and get lots of likes and at least you know people know it's out um you know and that and, that, and that's quite good 
Um, but I, I always think, to, to some extent, I always only only think that the book is really, you know, out and properly having some impact when you can kind of incorporate it in teaching. So, for instance, I've I'm doing this this um, semester. I'm doing one of my modules, which kind of uses mass observation as a as a as a frame. So it's called mass mass observing the British for my kind of second year students at the Montfort. And there's only a little bit about sport, but obviously I put the book here. So that would be great. In a few weeks' time, we'll be able to discuss um, various things, including, you know, including that. And you just think it, it's then it's doing something. It's doing what it should do. Um, I'm making my students read it, but hopefully they're getting something out of it. And, you know, I, I think that's when you really feel um, it's been worth it. Because yeah. sometimes, you, you know, it can feel a bit, oh, you know, all that work. And... <laughs> I'm thinking about that difference between academic writing and writing for the public, Raf. Aren't you turning your um, your work into a more popular version at the moment of your history of women's cricket? Yeah, I am. Um, so I published the academic book Ladies and Lords um, in 2019 with Peter Lang. Um, and that's great. And that's been I think that's been really important. Um, and has has actually been reviewed really positively um and i'm really happy with with the experience um but at the moment i'm working on a, a popular history of women's cricket um i think it's going to be called the women in whites um and it's i'm hoping that it'll come out um at some point in 2021 um i've got to finish writing it first because obviously writing it for a popular audience is quite different for writing for an academic audience and i think that they serve different purposes um but yeah i i do think that it's kind of part of my um mission which sometimes feels like a one-woman mission to try and actually say women have been playing cricket for quite a long time and get some of the um the stories and the characters a, a bit more well known um and I, I so i think that both books have their place and both um and both are important but yeah that's what i'm i'm working on at the moment Okay, well, that's great. Um, thanks a lot for chatting to me today. So I mentioned the Aberdare Prize with Raf earlier on. And now on that subject, I'm going to have a quick chat with Richard Bodie. Um, hi, Richard. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. Um, Richard is a, a PE teacher or was a PE teacher for over 30 years and is now retired. He's been a member of the BSSH for many, many years. And he also served on the BSSH executive with particular responsibility for schools liaisons. So kind of a role that Katie Taylor um, has currently taken up. Um, and currently he's the chair of the Aberdare Prize panel um, and he's here to talk to me about this year's Aberdare Prize. So uh, first of all, Richard, can you tell me what the Aberdare Prize is? Yeah, it is an annual annual award that the BSSH do run every year. It is it is a, lit, a sport, a literary, sorry, the title, Lord Aberdare Literary Sports History Prize. For the best book on basically any aspect of sports history by a British author. And it got me thinking a little bit when I um, when Jeff contacted me, Lord Aberdare, who? Who is he? Yeah. The members of the society know who he is. I can vaguely remember Richard Cox, who was a, a very influential member of the society in its formative years, spoke at a conference in the 1990s, I think, just putting into context who Lord Aberdare was. And uh, really, I'll lead on to something on that in a moment, because 
on the website, for example, it, it does go back to about 2002. But speaking to another member of the society, it went back a lot further than that. I mean, Lord Aberdare was a politician. Mm. I'm not going to give a big bio of him, but he was also a very, very renowned real tennis and rackets player um, who wrote quite a quite a prestigious book at the time, definitely, mm. on tennis, that is real tennis, and rackets. Yeah, It was called The Favour Book of Tennis and Rackets, which was published in 1980. And at the time, just looking at the flyleaf, I actually have got a copy of it in front of me. And it said, Lord Aberdare, who won the Amateur Tennis Championship four times and was also a distinguished rackets player, has written a book which is sure to be recognised as a classic and which will become a lasting source of pleasure for all enthusiasts. You know, so it was something that, you know, was held in quite a, quite a high esteem at the time. And certainly looking through it, you know, it is a fascinating piece of research. He's basically researched every single club in the world. Um, he wrote hundreds of letters to various clubs, visited every major club in the world, and it was undoubtedly the most remarkable piece of research into the history of tennis and rackets. I suppose it's seen as a kind of a role model for um, for, for historians at that time and into the future. Is that is that the impression that you well, get? Well, possibly. I mean, it is. It is. A, it's sort of. It's a mixture of both. It's very got wonderful images in. It can be termed coffee table-ish, but it's also got an academic sort of approach as well. Mm. And obviously, with the research, that comes through. Uh, quite clearly as well and a little bit of other thought cropped up with me because um how long does the award go back and speaking to an older member of the society uh, very recently he said it does go back way into 19 might go back even further and i did actually wonder if lord Aberdare was a member of bssh he died in 2005 uh-huh. now the award started way before that and why did it start who perhaps approached him did he come to the conferences at those time and present the award just a lot of uh, perhaps unanswered stories related to actually put the the prize into a bit of context regarding uh, lord aberdare i don't know yeah, that's something that maybe people listening out there might um, have some more information on. Uh, it will be the Society's 40th anniversary next year and the mm. committee are planning a, a series of events, pandemic um, uh, permitting, to kind of celebrate that anniversary. And some of, some of that activity will be looking at the early days of the Society and the origins of the Society and kind of tracing the development um, of the Society over time. Uh, and certainly, I think if, if anybody has any information about the, those early prizes, then we, the committee, would be very much um, very happy to uh, to receive that information. So get in touch, I guess, via the podcast or via the website. Um, but you said that he was a historian of rackets. Uh, when you were chairing the prize last year, was there any histories of rackets um, <laughs> submitted? No, there, uh, may have been, but, there may have been something related to it in the tennis book. The subjects, I mean, there was great diversity last year. There were 22 books, which was the largest number we've had for several, you know, for a long time, might be the, the most ever. Um, great diversity, football and cricket, usual. There was quite a few on football and cricket, as is 
quite often the case. Cycling, boxing, physical education, swimming, horse racing, tennis, and a book on the sports shoe. Ah, uh, yeah. It was interesting. And there were within that seven very strong books. And uh, the winner was Prashant's book on a cricket country and Indian Odyssey in the Age of Empire, mm. which I, I know you, books, yeah. you've done work on as well, Jeff, on that. Yeah, I, lucky, yeah I was lucky enough to review that book for the journal. And uh, it was a real pleasure to read and a real pleasure to review because it really was a, an excellent book. I mean, how do and you... I, sorry. sorry. And, well, does I probably maybe jumping in there but it was a pretty unanimous amongst such a strong field that we uh, that we did all agree on you know there was quite a bit of discussion but we were all quite unanimous in our feeling that Prashant was the standout book in an incredibly strong field and I think uh, I've certainly mentioned it and other people have mentioned it to me that in other years perhaps some of the other ones you know it was there were seven shortlisted, which was quite a big mm. shortlist, bigger than usual. And we thought that may, you know, create quite a bit of discussion. But uh, it was probably quite quite good in a way that we all sort of uh, were in total agreement, really, with the uh, our eventual choice as winner. Yeah. And there are three of you on the panel, aren't there? I mean, how, how does the process work? How do you come to... Um, shortlist things and decide. I mean, have there been p particular challenges this year with the pandemic? Well, the uh, there is a panel of three. Um, each panel member will receive a hard copy of the uh, nominated books from the publishers. You will then read them. Doesn't have to be in any particular order. Um, you read them. You make notes on them. You will th that will take place basically from end of January you may get a couple coming in early and it probably go through until approximately July time you've made your notes you'll then you'll probably be you will be in regular contact with the other panel members and with COVID last year um, I think we were in contact more often because we still didn't know exactly what would happen about whether we'd be able to get a face-to-face -face meeting to make our final decision so we were in regular contact once your books have been read you do have a, you know, a short sort of report about the book and your feelings, which um, you basically don't share throughout the year because it may just change somebody's opinion. You perhaps leave it until everybody has done that. And then you submit the complete list so people can have a little read through of them. Normally then, pre-COVID, you'd have had a, a meeting arranged at um, a convenient place and time where you would spend a, a day um, a day, an afternoon, whatever you um, meet up, and then you discuss, and eventually come to your, sh well, your shortlist. Sorry, your shortlist would have been chosen before your meeting, mm. and you discuss the shortlisted books, and then you come to your choice of the eventual winner. Um, as I said last year, this all had to be done by email and potentially Zoom to make any particular decisions. Um, and amidst all the problems, I think generally the whole the whole panel, you know, felt that things went okay, although there was some trepidation when it, you know, when things were just going on, but mm. it worked out quite well in the end. Mm. And you're coming to the end of your term as the chair of the judges. I mean, what have been the pluses of your experience um, being on the panel? Well, I think to, 
to be quite honest, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't talk negatively at all about it. It's been very positive in all ways and very very rewarding for me personally, and I'm sure it is for all other panel members. Um, I'm interested in a tremendously wide range of sports and a diverse range of topics was was without doubt truly it was educational it was interesting entertaining um and without doubt a thoroughly enjoyable sort of a time because as i say i i did get a lot of interest a lot of a lot of positive benefits from being involved and also the interaction with other panel members that certainly enhanced the enjoyment that you would get from being a member of the panel the discussions added considerably to the the overall experience that was had that's great thanks a lot for um, spending some time to talk to me today richard and uh as we mentioned earlier on if uh, if you do have a book that you've published in 2020 that you'd like to be up for consideration for the uh, lord Aberdare prize do get your publisher to get in touch with um the society and they will um put the publisher in touch with richard for the list of addresses to send books to and uh, good luck to those who uh, will be in the prize this year. I look forward to um, reading the shortlist and then hopefully uh, being at the announcement of the winner at the conference in Twickenham in August later this year. So thanks very much, Richard, and I'll, I'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.